Welcome to Parallax by Anka Kalra, a podcast produced by Radcliffe Cardiology to bring you a new angle of all things cardiology and the best from the US Cardiology Review. Published every second Monday, Anka Kalra, MD, interventional cardiologist at the Cleveland Clinic in Ohio, USA, speaks with legendary cardiologists, reviews late-breaking trials, and interviews authors of our latest and best US cardiology review articles. We call them hashtag audio articles. Parallax is the effect whereby the position or direction of an object appears to differ when viewed from different positions. So this podcast is your fix of reliable updates on all things cardiology by someone from a non-traditional background who is always looking at the industry from a new angle. Now, here's your host, Anka Kalra, MD. Hello and welcome to Parallax by Anka Kalra, a podcast brought to you by Radcliffe Cardiology. Radcliffe Cardiology is a medical media company publishing six peer-reviewed medical review journals on general cardiology, interventional cardiology, arrhythmias and electrophysiology, cardiac failure, and vascular and endovascular surgery. Radcliffe also hosts monthly educational webinars and roundtables and produces regular expert interviews on the latest research and devices in the cardiology field. All of this is available on Radcliffe's website for free. My name is Ankur Kalra, and I'm the host of Parallax, Radcliffe Cardiology's first ever podcast. I'm the editor-in-chief of US Cardiology Review, a bi-yearly peer-reviewed cardiology journal published by Radcliffe. I am an interventional cardiologist with a focus on coronary and structural heart interventions. I'm based at the Department of Cardiovascular Medicine at the Heart and Vascular Institute at Cleveland Clinic in Cleveland, Ohio. I'm also an assistant professor of medicine at the Cleveland Clinic Lerner College of Medicine of Case Western Reserve University. The purpose of this podcast is to bring the great content published by US Cardiology Review in a new format. Each episode, I will be interviewing one of the authors of an article published in the most recent US Cardiology Review so that you don't have to read the article, but can listen to it on the go. Think of it as an audio article. The past two weeks, I've also been traveling through my home country, India, on the Cardiovascular Science India Tour 2019. More on the Cardiovascular Science India Tour 2019 in an upcoming issue of US Cardiology Review, which will focus on the scourge of coronary disease in South Asians and what I and the editors of the journal Circulation learned during our tour to India in March 2019. By the way, do check out the upcoming late-breaking trial that will be presented by Dr. Jagmeet Singh of Massachusetts General Hospital and Harvard Medical School at the Hot Rhythm Society meeting in May 2019 on the effect of cardiac resynchronization therapy in patients with chemotherapy-induced cardiomyopathy. In episode two, I'm speaking to Dr. Santiago Garcia of the Minneapolis Heart Institute, who published an article on high-sensitivity cardiac troponin and their role in acute coronary syndrome. In US Cardiology Review, volume 13, issue one, published in March, 2019. You can find the full link to the article in the podcast's show notes.
we have with us uh, an esteemed guest. Um, I have the honor and the privilege uh, of introducing uh, our listeners to Dr. Santiago Garcia. Um, I met Santiago as a fellow uh, in Minneapolis when I was training at the Minneapolis Art Institute. Um, so I consider him as my teacher, my mentor, and my friend. Uh, Dr. Garcia is um, Associate Professor of Medicine at University of Minnesota. He is an interventional cardiologist at the Minneapolis Heart Institute. Uh, Santiago, welcome. Thank you. Thank you so much, Uncle, for the kind introduction, and uh, it's a pleasure for me to be here today. Thanks, Santiago. So um, I also want to thank you for your contribution to uh, our journal uh, with an excellent article, which I think holds a lot of relevance in the daily bread and butter cardiology that all of us practice every day. Um, the article is titled Role of High Sensitivity Cardiac Troponin in Acute Coronary Syndrome. And um, I want to start um, by asking you uh, just to go over uh, with our listeners some common definitions, which you know I don't think are discussed. And there's a lot of ambiguity in how people understand these definitions. And I think it'll be important for all of us to be on the same page. Um, so if we could talk a little bit about uh, the following terms, and I'm going to enlist these terms. Um, coefficient of variation, limit of blank, a limit of detection, a limit of quantification, and delta. I think these are very uh, ambiguous terms to people out in the community who practice cardiology. And I think uh, these are concepts or terms which are very important for uh, the general practitioner to understand. So uh, you know, if you can just take the time and go over with us what these terms mean and how you understand them and interpret them and how you utilize them in your daily practice. Yeah, yeah. Let, let me start by saying that I'm not a, a biochemist. I'm an interventional cardiologist. So I think it's important that uh, we understand some of these concepts so we can practice medicine, not, not so much because we need to understand the, the granularity of each uh, specific assay, but I think the the main difference with the previous troponin assays is that now you can quantify troponin in over 50% of the population um, using these high sensitivity assays. So the troponin that we're measuring is actually the same as we're measuring before. It's just that we have a more sensitive tool. So it's important now to understand that the troponin positive becomes a, an obsolete concept um, in the era of high sensitivity troponin. So. To answer your question specifically, the limit of blank really refers to the, the background noise that is uh, uh, present in the analytical measurement when there is no troponin. So a test that could be positive uh, when there is really no troponin in the system. Um, and that really uh, it, it should be viewed, I think, as many interventional cardiologists in, in simple terms will, will see that as a false positive test. Uh, the limit of detection is is the lowest concentration um, that is detectable in 95% of measurements. So uh, usually at this level, which is very, very low troponin concentration, the imprecision of most sizes continues to be high. Therefore, the measurements tend to be inaccurate. The, the next concept, if we're moving up in the uh, concentration of troponin, uh, is the limit of quantification. This is what uh, uh, most labs consider they can report reliable, uh, reliably with a number when there is at least less than 20% imprecision. 
Um, and finally, the, the coefficient of variation. This is uh, something that is considered part of the definition when a new test comes out and it wants to be labeled as a high sensitivity assay. It has, it has to have at least 10 or less um, uh, percent uh, variation at the 99% uh, of upper reference limit for that particular assay. So in the old uh, days, proponents had uh, more than 20% variation at the 99%. And this is this is the cutoff that we use in clinical practice to uh, rule in and rule out people. So now having a less than 10% coefficient of variation, I think, increases our precision. And that's how I see this parameter. It's a way to essentially be more precise. The concept of delta, I think, is tied to the first thing that I mentioned, which is now we can measure troponins in over 50% of the population. So we, in our minds, we are used to dichotomizing uh, patients as being troponin positive and troponin negative. And now with this assay, that concept is going to go away. What is more important is not so much whether you can measure the troponin, it's what is the delta, how quickly that uh, first assay increase and whether that has been validated as a, you know, an important signal for detecting myocardial injury. And uh, we can go into the details as to you know, what is a, a delta of clinical significance. Um, both absolute deltas and relative deltas have been validated in clinical practice, and I think most of the experts will favor absolute changes over relative changes to the refined uh, ongoing myocardial ischemia. Uh, great. Uh, no, I think it'll be important for our listeners to delve, um, you know, a little bit more into these concepts that you just touched, because I, I think these are such important concepts, uh, you know, particularly uh, for physicians in the emergency department who I think um, are, are the first responders, uh, you know, if you will, for the for taking care of these patients. Uh, I think if you can just uh, go over, you know, the absolute delta and the relative delta, I think those are very important concepts, you know, as much as they are for me, um, you know, I think they're going to be important for uh, everyone in the community. Yeah, so the, the relative delta refers to really how much of that second uh, troponin value um, is an increase in, in, in expressing percentage. Uh, uh, in comparison to the first value. So if your first value is 10, your second value is 20, that's a 100% increase. And each assay has a different uh, level uh, that has been validated in, in clinical practice. So there is no number that one can remember. You just be, have to be familiar with the one that your, your hospital is using. The, the absolute delta, I think, is the one concept that I think most uh, experts would agree is perhaps more important than the relative delta, and that is the absolute number that has been validated uh, with clinical events. Uh, um, for example, for the, <coughs> the high-sensitivity troponin uh, T, it's, it's uh, 14. Uh, for troponin I, it is 26. Uh, so a value less than that it has a very good negative predictive value for myocardial infarction. Um, and, and these are now part of the, the uh, rule of protocols, which, you know, in general terms, uh, perhaps we should uh, tell our listeners that there are really uh, three categories of, of uh, accelerated diagnostic protocols. The, the first one is, is the one that just takes into account the, the troponin values. And, and there are 
Uh, I think a number of tests now approved in the United States, I think up to four now, but there will be more coming. And each one has its own specific criteria for positivity. Um, the second type of uh, accelerated diagnostic protocol, it's a combination of uh, uh, troponins and risk scores. Uh, and these have been validated in clinical practice where you can use a uh, specific component plus the TINI risk score um, or the ADAPT uh, score, the HEART score. There are multiple algorithms out there. And in general, uh, what it does is improves the, the diagnostic accuracy of the, of the protocol when you combine clinical variables with uh, laboratory parameters. And, and the third one, which is one that is interesting um, because it won't be available, I think, in the U.S. for a while, um, is the uh, single blood test. Uh, when you can come into the emergency department and do one test, in particular in patients that have had symptoms uh, beyond three hours, and then you have the ability to send the patients home with just one uh, high-sensitivity troponin measurement. Um, and there are different values that have been validated for troponin T's five uh, has a very high negative predictive value. Um, for troponin I, the adult architect test is 1.2 nanograms per liter that has a 99% uh, sensitivity for acute myocardial infarction. The problem is that in the United States, the FDA um, has approved the use of high sensitivity troponins, but has restricted the reporting of results concentrations that are at least six nanograms per liter. So anything below that, you won't get a number. Um, and therefore, I guess the, the mandate is it's, it's there that you probably need to do more than one test. Um, you have to do one of these rapid rule-out ruling protocols that involves serial testing. Usually, you know, at time zero and two hours or time zero and three hours, depending on the test. There are also super uh, accelerated pathways where you test at zero and one hour. Um, and there are different cutoffs for, for all these different algorithms. Uh, thank you for touching on uh, the protocol, Santiago, because that's a great segue into my next question, because I was going to ask you um, the protocol that you use in your practice. And... Um, you know, I think, again, for the listeners, I think it'll be important to delve into the details or the specifics of whether it's one-hour or two-hour algorithms that you use uh, at the Minneapolis Art Institute. Well, surprisingly enough, we haven't yet uh, fully embraced uh, high-sensitivity proponents in our hospital. Uh, we're making the transition uh, in that direction. So uh, I can't speak for, for our own experience at the moment, but... Um, what I would say to the listeners is, is all these protocols have been extensively validated. Um, whether you do zero to one, zero to two, and zero to three hours, it really depends on um, the, the assay you're using and the level of, of confidence you want to have. But in general terms, the, these protocols have very, very high uh, sensitivity and specificity. We're talking about the order of 96, 98%. Uh, for specificity for, for myocardial infarction. And the predictive value of these protocols tends to be in the order of 72 to about uh, 85% or so. So they're all fairly similar. Um, I think the one variable that is important is the duration of symptoms. So if patients present with symptoms for over three hours, I think the, the sampling interval is perhaps less important. Um, if patients present, you know, 
within three hours of having symptoms, then these this, uh, different pathways may have some very subtle differences. But um, overall, I think the, the diagnostic accuracy is very high for all of them. Uh, so that leads me to my next question about um, differentiating type 1 versus other types of myocardial injury. Um, and, um, you know, what is the first diagnostic downstream test of choice um, you deploy or use uh, when you have a positive high-sensitivity troponin value? Yeah, so I think it's important that uh, to understand that uh, a positive troponin does not necessarily equate uh, uh, myocardial ischemia due to uh, atherosclerosis. There are other causes of positive troponin. Uh, the most common ones in clinical practice involve uh, chronic kidney disease, congestive heart failure, uh, etc. But um, the clinical uh, correlate of myocardial ischemia is an important consideration uh, in the definition of myocardial infarction. And that's something that has been maintained over the years, even though the definition has changed a little bit. Uh, to have a clinical correlate of ischemia is very important. So I, I do think that there is a role for uh, a good history and physical when trying to distinguish type 2 type 1 versus type 2. Um, many, many times we are checking troponins in patients that are asymptomatic. Uh, or have no indication of uh, angina. Um, the typical example that comes to mind is someone in the perioperative setting. Um, many of these patients are recovering from anesthesia. Um, they won't report angina. They may or may not have EKG changes, but they will have uh, elevation in, in cardiac troponins. Um, so it's very, very important to understand the syndrome here, not to pull the trigger for all these interventions that usually come when someone makes a diagnosis of myocardial infarction because our understanding of this entity is still very limited. Um, so I, I, I don't have a gold standard for diagnosing type 2 myocardial infarction, but I think it's a combination of uh, a good clinical history. Um, I don't have an absolute value of troponin that makes me think type 1 versus type 2 because I've, been, I, I've actually seen uh, very high troponins with type 2 myocardial infarction. What, what is important, and I think the driving force is was, what's the pathophysiology? Um, if you're seeing, you know, the tachycardia, ST segment depression in someone who just lost three units of blood and is recovering from a AAA operation, I would be more inclined to think of type 2. Um, at the end, I do think it's a combination of uh, uh, all those variables and coronary and geography. That's, that's really the best way to understand the pathophysiology. Um, I'm not suggesting that everyone with a type 2 should get a, a coronary angiogram, but I think uh, without that, it, it's, it's difficult to understand uh, uh, sometimes these, these two uh, entities. Sure. Uh, is there um, a threshold where, um, you know, you would consider um, a test in between, uh, for example, a coronary CT angiogram and not, a, not an invasive coronary angiogram? Um, to sort of utilize that test as a gatekeeper to invasive angiography? Or is it that it's very dependent on history and physical and not particularly the absolute troponin value for you to consider that testing, that intermediate testing in between? Yeah, I, I think that, um, you know, the role of you know, non-invasive CT in patients that have elevated troponins has not been fully investigated. In general, uh, those patients... Um, 
when we want to define the anatomy, we tend to take them to the cath lab. I do think there is a role for MRI um, in understanding the, the pathophysiology, perhaps in some of these cases. Um, and echo, obviously, uh, as the first step. So uh, my approach has been when I'm when I'm when I'm thinking in 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 a type two myocardial infarction in a patient that has uh, medical illness, whether it's uh, you know the postoperative setting, ICU patient, etc. Um, we generally start with an echo, uh, an echocardiogram, and unless there is high risk features there, um, such as you know multiple motion abnormalities, low ejection fraction, etc., um, I do not offer coronary angiography immediately. Uh, to these patients. Uh, we like to see them at 30 days. Uh, they get started on optimal medical therapy. Uh, usually that means aspirin, if they can tolerate that, beta blockers, ACE, and statins. And then we see them at 30 days, usually with a functional test, um, and see how they're doing. And in general, they are doing much better. This is not uh, something that, uh, you know, they present with angina 30 days later. In general, the, the patients, once the medical illness is resolved, um, they tend to do well. Um, and at 30 days, we do a functional test to risk stratify um, the need for uh, coronary geography. The patients that we like to take to the cath lab uh, immediately are the ones that are hemodynamically unstable. The ones that have uh, more dramatic EKG changes uh, that suggest high-risk coronary anatomy. Uh, ST depression in multiple leads or ST elevation that is transient. Um, or troponin values that make the, the consulting cardiologists uncomfortable. And, and that really has uh, uh, different thresholds depending on who is doing the consult. I must admit that there is a, a fair amount of clinical variability in that. Uh, but in general, I mean, any troponin that does not start with a zero gets my attention. Any troponin about one, I think it's something that I list. Uh, spend some time looking at the echo of the EKG and trying to understand what the pathophysiology may be. Great. And then um, I think we should also talk about the intermediate gray zone. You know, there is a section in the article um, and I would really encourage the listeners to actually, I mean, I think the podcast is great and I think it covers most of the concepts that Santiago has written about, but I think it's good to go back and read um, the article that uh, Santiago and Mahesh have written. Um, would you... Uh, be kind enough in just touching a little bit upon the intermediate gray zone um, for for the troponin assays. Yeah, so this is, uh, in, in simple terms, is when your clinical judgment and your troponins don't go together. So you have a strong reason to think the patient is having an ACS. However, the troponin values are telling you uh, the contrary, that the, this is not something that you should worry about. And um, the guidelines, uh, um, and I think we mentioned this in the paper, the European guidelines make a specific recommendation to use clinical judgment. Um, and, and in those patients, um, really that involves usually reviewing medical records, performing serial EKGs, doing a more prolonged uh, sampling interval so that we don't miss uh, these patients. Um, using clinical scores, uh, such as the heart score, is also useful. So then you can reclassify this gray zone patient as low, intermediate, or high risk. Um, and I, I do think, and this is not something that at this point is supported by the literature, but that would be really a nice role for, for cardiac CT. Um, because that's, that's a test that has been validated in the emergency department setting. 
And I think it's uh, simple and available enough in 2018 that uh, can eliminate the uncertainty uh, around this diagnosis in these patients that uh, do not fit the uh, criteria for myocardial infarction, but higher predators probability of having disease. Great. And then, uh, Santiago, as my concluding question is, as someone who's um, obviously seen this field evolve and, uh, you know, I obviously consider you as an expert in, in the field, um, where where do you see this going, you know, once the high sensitivity troponin assays are introduced into clinical practice, do you, do you foresee an interim uh, increase in downstream testing when it comes to invasive angiography or, you know, certain... Um, you know, selective invasive strategies or certain tests like, uh, you know, the cardiac CT or the cardiac MRI or, uh, you know, myocardial perfusion stress imaging. Where do you see um, resource utilization uh, going, you know, once the high sensitivity assays yeah. are introduced in clinical practice? I think some, some of the consequences of introducing these assays in clinical practice are... Uh, easy to predict, others are not so easy to predict. The one that I think is fairly straightforward to predict is we're going to see more patients going home with reduced uh, uh, or accelerated uh, chest pain pathways where they can get rolled out very quickly in a couple of hours and, and go home uh, safely. And that, I think, is going to be a plus uh, of having these assays available. The one part that is the one you are alluding to in your question is more uh, difficult to predict is how physicians are going to uh, adapt to this. Are they going to order more tests? Are they going to be taking more patients to the cath lab? I think the, the experts, uh, they all strongly advocate uh, that, that, that this transition to high sensitivity troponins should not occur without preparation and intensive education. Um, the concern here is that people will think that any positive troponin needs to go to the cathlet. When in reality, that's part of the definition of high-sensitive troponin is that you can measure these uh, values that we could not measure before in over 50% of the population. So that would be, I think, a very serious mistake. Um, I think once you have adequate training uh, I don't anticipate that uh, this will cause a significant increase in the number of invasive procedures being performed to these patients. It shouldn't. Um, but really the key word here is uh, education and preparation because we have to change our mindset. For many years, we were told that uh, circulating troponins are not normal um, and that when they can be detected in the bloodstream, they indicate myocardial uh, damage. Um, well, that concept is going to have to go away. We're going to have to start focusing more on deltas. And uh, what deltas have been uh, reported to be of clinical importance and what are the deltas that we can ignore. Uh, so people walk around with uh, detectable troponins and we need to understand that as cardiologists so that we don't inflict uh, damage by doing the necessary procedures. Great. Um, this has been an excellent summary of um, an article which is very well put together. Uh, Santiago, thank you once again for joining us. I think this is going to be very meaningful for our listeners uh, and for uh, clinicians who are taking care of patients in the trenches. Um, it's, it's a very meaningful summary. It's a very succinct summary of a very important topic. So I thank you once again for your contribution. It's been my pleasure and thank you for the opportunity.
If you have any questions or comments about this audio article, thoughts on the Cardiovascular Science India Tour 2019, or the upcoming MADIT CHIC trial, the Jagmeet Singh trial that will be presented at HRS 2019, please send this through to us at podcast at ratcliffe-group.com and we will share this with audience in the next episode. Thank you for listening to Parallax, brought to you by Radcliffe Cardiology. My name is Ankur Kalra, and I look forward to joining us again for our next episode on early management of benign essential hypertension by Dr. Athena Poppis. Dr. Poppis is the current Vice President of the American College of Cardiology and Chief of Cardiology at the Department of Cardiovascular Medicine at the Warren Alpert School of Medicine of Brown University. Goodbye for now and speak to you again soon. Thank you very much for listening. Dear cardiologists, we want to make this podcast about you and for you. So please email us your critical thoughts, comments and questions at podcast at radcliffe-group.com and visit uscjournal.com for more information. You can also follow us on Twitter, LinkedIn, Facebook and Instagram at Radcliffe Cardiology for daily updates. Join thousands of cardiologists and become a Radcliffian by registering to radcliffecardiology.com. You will receive regular newsletters and gain access to hundreds of expert interviews, educational webinars, clinical cases, and peer-reviewed articles from our six medical review journals on general cardiology, interventional cardiology, arrhythmia and electrophysiology, cardiac failure, and vascular and endovascular surgery. Thank you.